Uh, next week, just a quick reminder, next week is Super Bowl Sunday, and so we are not going to have a 5 p.m. service that Sunday. Instead, we're going to move the 5 p.m. to Saturday. So we'll do Saturday at uh, 5, is it called Super Bowl Eve? I don't know. So, so Saturday at 5 p.m. and then 9 and 1045. So I hope you'll come to one of those and then go home and root against the Patriots uh, because that's what we should all do. Uh, but you'll enjoy your day, whatever you're doing. And uh, anyway, Saturday at 5, 9 and 1045. We hope to uh, see you there. Um, before we open up the scriptures, I want to give us a little bit of a financial update on 2016. And the reason we're doing this is we've just closed out our financial year. We run on a calendar year for our fiscal year, and we try to be transparent and open about how we do things and uh, want you to be able to have the information you might want. And so I want to be able to, to communicate that to you as well as just celebrate together what God's doing. And, and uh, God does more than just money and attendance and buildings and kind of some of the stuff that uh, you know, all churches at least keep track of, uh, but he uses the financial resources that you and I and everybody who participates in this church, he uses those resources to change lives, right? I heard stories of students at camp who uh, put their trust in Christ, and uh, that thrills me. I hear stories of uh, men and women who have never come to church, or it's been a long, long time, and their heart is starting to come alive to God's Word, and, and that's possible because of your giving. And so uh, I want to thank you on the front end for that, but also just kind of recap together uh, what this last year looked like. So our budgeted need for 2016 last year was $1.52 million. Um, and uh, that went up just slightly because we had hired some additional folks toward the end of the year, but uh, 1.52 million was our budgeted need. Uh, really encouraging, our actual expenses uh, were just under that. So uh, 1.504,000 you know, uh, plus. So just 1% underneath in terms of our actual spending. So that's really good. I'm really proud of our staff and so many of our volunteer leaders who manage a portion of their budget. Uh, they did it well, they stewarded it effectively. And I always say, wouldn't you love it if your government could do that, right? <laughs> wouldn't that just be something? Um, and really, we, we try to model as a church leadership how we ought to think about uh, giving and stewardship in our own lives, right? So at least 10% of everything that comes in, we give toward church planning, other outward-focused ministries, and we try to spend less than we bring in, which uh, you should do that. That's a good <laughs> approach to uh, life is, is to do it that way. Anyway, so we're really thankful for that. Um, and, but, but when we, so 1.52 was our budget and need. The actual giving, what you all gave to our general fund last year, was just over one86 which is 23% over the budgeted need, which that is just amazing. So thank you. That's really remarkable. So the surplus there ends up being just over 360,000. Just so you know what happens with that, um, at each congregation where there's a surplus, 70% of that surplus goes, is to be, can be used however that local congregation's elders wants to use it. In our case, we're using it to add to our savings for our future building that's going to be next door. So 70% of that number will go into our future savings. 30% of it will go into Big R Redemption Reserves, which will help all the other congregations as they pursue building opportunities or new church plants or other things that... Uh, we as a leadership team deem uh, need to be used for that. So really encouraging just how that looks and, and really thankful. Um, when you add the general fund giving, Christmas offering, home away from home, a little bit of benevolence giving, just all the different areas where people gave in 2016, it's really remarkable. You didn't just give 1.86 million, you actually gave a lot more. So this is the total amount that you gave in 2016. 
And uh, yeah, just incredible. And if you're like me, I mean, Molly and I talk about this a lot, especially related to our Home Away From Home initiative and what our commitment is. And, and it's interesting because our commitment to us feels really big. <laughs> it feels really sacrificial. I put it next to those numbers and it's like, eh, it's not very much at all. And yet what happens is, is each person who calls this church home just faithfully participates and, and does what God leads them to do. Uh, God provides, and he provides abundantly, and we're just really, really thankful. So, so thank you for that, and let's take a moment before we open the scriptures and, and thank the Lord. Uh, Father in heaven, we do thank you. Thank you for your provision. Thank you for your generosity to us as a church, to each uh, person and each family here. God, uh, many people have given really sacrificially and joyfully and uh, intentionally to be able to uh, be in the kind of financial position we're at as a church. Uh, we're thankful for it. We pray that you'd allow uh, the elders and staff and other volunteer leaders who manage portions of this to use it effectively um, and to honor you in that process. God, thank you for how you provide. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, one more quick thing is just we have a copy of the 2017 budget. If you would like to see that, uh, that's available to you. You can pick up one of these half sheets at the info desk as you leave. Uh, it has the information that I just showed you as well as kind of the breakdowns for what our budget looks like in the coming year. So feel free to, to grab that if you would like it. Um, but for now, let's open up the scriptures to Acts chapter 2. And uh, I'm going to begin reading in verse 36. If you're able to, please stand with me uh, for the reading of God's word. Acts chapter 2, verses 36 to 38. Actually, today we're going to be studying a bigger section than this. Um, we're going to be studying verses 14 to 41, but we want to just read 36 to 38. It's kind of the climax of this scene, and then we'll work through the rest of it as we go. All right, so Acts chapter 2, verses 36 to 38. If, that, if you have one of the black hardcover Bibles, that's page 910. And as I read, remember, we're reading God's word. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. May this word of the Lord unite us as a church and make us bold as Jesus' missionaries. You may be seated. Well, this is week four of our series uh, going through the book of Acts, and um, if you've not been with us, I want to catch you up as well as kind of set the scene uh, for what's happening here in Acts chapter 2. So in Acts chapter 1, uh, Jesus has risen from the dead. He's been spending time with his disciples. He's been teaching them, uh, reminding them of some things that he taught them before, teaching them some new things, helping them see things in a new way. And he tells them in, in chapter 1, verse 8, that they need power to be his witnesses, so they need to wait for the Holy Spirit. Then in the end of Acts chapter 1, uh, they're together, and they're, they're in this waiting period. And it's really interesting in Acts 1, because you see these four qualities that I think any of us would actually really want in a church. If you were, if you were looking for a church, um, you might look for these four things. 
The first thing is they're united together in love. They're spending time together. They're consistently in each other's lives. There's a unity that they love each other. They're also devoting themselves to prayer, uh, it says there, that they, they, they continue to pray as a, as a habitual thing. That's not just a random thing, but they're committed to the Lord through prayer. They're committed to the scriptures. In that part of, of Acts chapter 1, uh, they're reflecting on uh, some of the scriptures that predicted what happened with Judas, and they're trying to obey, obey God. And, and they're also trusting in God's sovereignty. Uh, Judas had abandoned uh, Jesus and the disciples. He had killed himself, and so they needed to replace Judas as an apostle. And so they go to the Lord. They say, Lord, who have you picked? And they pray, and, and they trust him. And it's, it's interesting, as you look at Acts 1, Right? Think about this. If you ever move to a new city or maybe you're around and you're going, I'm looking for this in a church or uh, maybe you go, I don't even think I'd ever look for a church. Well, if you did, here's what you should look for. Okay? Are they united together in love? Do they really care about each other? Are they devoted to the Lord through prayer? Do they hear God's voice through his word and do what it says? And do they trust that God is king and he's the one they look to? Right? If you have those four things, how many of you think, like, that's a good church? Like, I, I don't know what else I'd want. Like, that's incredible. And it kind of raises this really interesting question of if that's what they had in Acts 1, why did they need the Spirit? I mean, they kind of had it like the ideal church. What'd they need the Spirit for? What'd they need Pentecost for? They already had everything you'd think you'd need. Now, the reason they wanted the Spirit is not the same reason that a lot of people today want the Spirit. A lot of people today say, oh, I want to experience more of the Holy Spirit. I want to taste more of the Holy Spirit. I want to have a powerful encounter with the Holy Spirit. And oftentimes, what people today are wanting is a personal, private, ecstatic experience. Oh, I just, I want to feel the Holy Spirit. Show of hands. Who wants? I mean, you don't have to show you, but like, don't we all want that? We all want that. that. Nothing wrong with feeling the Holy Spirit. But that's not why they needed the Spirit. They didn't need the Spirit so that they could all have a warm, spiritual, fuzzy blanket of the Holy Spirit all around them. They needed the Spirit for mission. They needed the Spirit so that they would have the power to be Jesus witnesses. So listen, if you go, oh, I want the Holy Spirit. I just want more of the Spirit. Why? Just for you to use selfishly? So they just, you have this wonderful spiritual experience? No. So that the people around us can, can ask the question that gets asked in chapter 2, verse 12, after the Spirit is poured out in power, right, there's this mighty wind, this incredible thing, people are speaking languages they've never learned before, people from all over the world who speak those languages are hearing them declare the mighty acts of God, they see this powerful move of the Spirit, and they ask in verse 12, what does this mean? What does this mean? What do we do with this? Listen, the reason we want the Spirit is so that the world around us would go, what does this mean? I see you with a different kind of joy. I see you with a different kind of endurance. I see you, you seem to have a different sort of compass in your life, right? All the circumstances come around you and everyone else complains, but you don't. What does that mean? That's why we need the Spirit. 
so that people would ask, what does this mean? Now, not everyone's going to be as intrigued. Some people are going to do what it says in verse 13, but others mocking said they are filled with new wine. They're drunk. They're drunk. Now, get this. It's not because they were speaking gibberish. They weren't speaking gibberish. They were speaking known languages that people understood. Why did people think they were drunk? Because they were so joyful. Because they were so in love with God. No one's like that. They must be drunk. And so this sermon today that Peter is going to preach, that we'll look at in verses 14 to 41, is Peter's answer, the Apostle Peter, his answer to the question in verse 12, what does this mean? And this is important for us today because if you want to understand the core message of Christianity, this is it. This is it. This is the first place where somebody stands up and tells a crowd of people, here's what Christianity is. Here's what the gospel is. Here's the significance of Jesus. So if you're a person who's maybe never heard that, you go, oh, okay, I want to hear what that is. Maybe you think you know what Christianity is about. But are you sure? Or is it possible that you're just thinking of kind of a caricature of what you think you've heard or what you think you've seen? Well, you need this to understand what is the core message of Christianity. This is such an important passage, even in the rest of the New Testament. Uh, Daryl Bach, who we've quoted throughout this series, is a New Testament scholar that trained a bunch of us before we preached the series. He said this. He said, this speech is one of the most important theological declarations in the New Testament. The word theological means about God. This is one of the most important about God declarations in the New Testament. Who is God? What is he doing? What's happening by God in history? That's what Peter's going to answer in this particular passage. So if you have your Bible, uh, turn it back to chapter 2, verse 14. And I'm going to kind of teach through a little bit at a time. Uh, It's fitting that because this is Acts chapter 2, there's a bunch of pairs that we see throughout this passage. We're going to see two witnesses. We're going to see two events. Two promises and two conditions. Two witnesses, two events, two promises, two conditions. That's what we're going to see as we go through. Verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. Now, the third hour of the day, that's 9 a.m. So I find this to be really funny. Peter doesn't stand up and go, hey, 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 they're not drunk. This was the Holy Spirit. He stands up and goes, they're not drunk. It's only 9 a.m. <laughs> like, wait a few hours. and I, I, I mean, I don't know, but it's just such a funny, like you'd think he'd be like, no, this, but it's his first time preaching, right? So maybe he's like, <laughs> start with a joke, you know what? It's only 9 a.m. He he goes on in verse 16 to start to explain, hey, here's what happened. And he quotes uh, the prophet Joel, and Joel 2 in particular. And and this is a passage that these religious Jews, right, these were devout Jews who had gathered together uh, to celebrate this Feast of Weeks, this Jewish festival. They would have been familiar with this passage. Now, my guess is most of us are not familiar with Joel 2. 
And we're going to see a lot of other places in Acts where they preach in a different way to people who aren't as familiar with it. But in this context, they're preaching this way because these Jews would have been familiar with it. And Peter essentially says, everything that you've just seen was talked about by the prophet Joel. He says this, verse 16, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days, it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. Peter says, hey, this move of God is for everybody. If you, didn't, if you were here last week or didn't hear last week, Seth made this point that the, the Spirit came on all who were in the house praying. Not just on the leaders, not just on the people on stage, not just the people in important roles. Everyone was part of it. That's what he says. The sons, the daughters, the young men, the older men, the servants, the male servants, the female servants. Do you know the good news that Christianity is for everyone? It's not just for Americans. It's not just for good people, as if there were any. It's not just for bad people. There's a lot of them, aren't we? It's for everybody. It's for white people and black people and Asians, Latinos. It's for people in Europe. It's for refugees. It's for people who have same-sex attraction. It's for people who could list out all their sins, and it's for people who are just absolutely blind to the way that they've disobeyed. But that's who Christianity's for. And when the Spirit pours out, Peter says, hey, this is what Joel talked about. When the Spirit pours out, these people who were previously defined by their group, defined by their other identity, they're now defined as the people of God. The Spirit pours out on them and they have a new power. This is a mighty work of God. He continues, verse 19, and I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. Peter says, hey, this is all part of God's move in these final days. The clock is ticking. Therefore, verse 21, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You feel the judgment of God? Call on the name of the Lord. And Peter says, hey, what you've seen, this pouring out of the Spirit, that's what Joel talked about. Now, why did it happen? Well, that's what he's going to look at in just a moment. But before we get there, let's look first at the first two. The first pair is two witnesses. Two witnesses. There's two witnesses to these events. There's the prophets and there's the apostles. We've just looked a moment ago at Joel 2. Joel is one of the prophets who told about this work that God was doing. In a little bit, Peter is also going to talk about David. He's going to quote from Psalm 16, which King David wrote. And if you don't know all these names, don't worry about it. But these are people who hundreds of years before the events of Jesus wrote about things that were fulfilled by the events of Jesus. So the first witness is these prophets who hundreds of years have written these things. The second witness is Peter and the other people who saw what took place. Look down to verse 32 for a moment. 
It says, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. Peter said, we saw Jesus rise from the dead. We saw him crucified. We saw all these things, right? The prophets talked about it hundreds of years before, and we saw it. Listen, Christianity is not a game of first century telephone where this person talked to this person that got a little muddier, and they talked to this person, and they talked to this person, and, and hundreds of years later, no. Peter says, I was there. I saw this stuff. I saw Jesus teach. I saw Jesus buried in a tomb. And I saw Jesus risen from the dead. So Christianity is built on two witnesses, the prophets who declared it beforehand and the witnesses who saw it when it actually happened. So the Spirit has come. He says, this is a fulfillment of what the prophets said, and here's what actually happened. Here's what's triggered all these events. Look at verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. He says, listen, guys, you saw this Jesus. You went out on the mountain when he preached. You heard about how he transformed water into wine. You know about the lepers and the beggars and the lame people who all of a sudden were healed and made whole. You saw this. This was God's work through Jesus. You know about it. Verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. That's an amazing statement. It was not possible for Jesus to be held in the grave. Get this, it's not a fluke that he rose. It would have been a fluke if he didn't because it's not possible for Jesus to be held by death. And then Peter goes to another prophet, to, to David, and he quotes from Psalm 16. And Psalm 16 is an interesting psalm, uh, especially because of the part that, that Peter mentions in verse uh, 27, where David writes, For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. Huh. So here's what's happening. In Psalm 16, David is saying, God, when I die, you're not going to let me stay in the grave. God, when I die, I'm not just going to go down to the pit and never be heard from again. I'm going to rise someday. And so here's what Peter says, how he explains it in verse 29. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. You hear what he's saying? <laughs> David said, I'm never going to be held by the grave. And Peter goes, but you can go to his grave. Like there's a whole tourist industry around this. You can go, you go see it. So here's what he says. Being there, uh, verse 30, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, listen, 
You crucified Jesus. You killed him. You saw the works he did. That was all the work of God, but you killed him. And listen, he rose. David's still in the tomb. So what David must have been talking about was a descendant who would come after him. Well, that descendant who also was of the line of David, right? This is why Jesus' parents had to go to Bethlehem, which was the city of David, because Jesus was from the line of David. And Jesus, a descendant of David, now fulfills the prophecy of David from Psalm 16. Verse 33, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing. Verse 36, jump down there. He quotes David again in Psalm 110, but verse 36 sums it up. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So Peter has said the spirit came out, which was prophesied by the the, the prophets, and we saw it happen, right? Those were the two witnesses. And now he says all this was triggered by two events. So there were two witnesses, and there were also two events. What was the first event? The first event was the death of Jesus. That's in verse 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. He says it again in verse 36, this Jesus whom you crucified. So that's the first event that triggered all of these things. Now I want to just kind of pause for a moment and and look at something that's in verse 23 that I think is really actually pretty significant because I get questions about this sort of thing a lot. So I just want to pause on it and then we'll go back and look at the second event. Um, and here's, here's the question that comes up. The question that comes up often is, how is it that God can be in charge of everything? The theological word for that is sovereign. How can God be sovereign, and yet how can our choices be real? Like if God is ruling the universe, if God is in charge of the universe, if God is sovereign over all, if there is not a square inch of the universe over which God does not say, mine, That's sovereignty. If that's true, then do our choices matter? Do our choices mean anything? And how can God hold us responsible for our choices if he's really in charge of all of it? You ever heard a question like that? You ever thought a question like that? How can this be? Are we just puppets? Are we just robots? Well, verse 23 is a very interesting verse to consider in light of those questions. Verse 23 says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, okay, that's God's sovereignty, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. That's responsibility. So get this, in the midst of this, here's what Peter's saying. He's saying, you really did kill him. You really did crucify him. You really did want him dead. Didn't you? Yes. And they know it because later they're cut to the heart over it. They accept responsibility. They know they did it. They know they're guilty. And at the very same time, all those same events happen according to, you get the wording, the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. The crucifixion of Jesus was not an accident. You go, well, I don't get it. How's that work? 
I don't know. <laughs> I can't explain that. And, and I realize there's, there's mystery there. That's not entirely satisfying. But here's the thing. If you, if you aren't willing to live in that tension, you, you fall off the horse in either toward fatalism where you say, you know what, God just rules everything and our choices don't mean anything and it's all just bound to happen. Well, that's not what the Bible says. Your choices matter. Or you fall off the other side of the horse and you just embrace humanism where you say, you know what, it's just all about our choices and it's just whatever we do, we, you know, we, our choices run the whole thing and it doesn't really matter what God has to say. Well, well, neither fatalism or humanism are biblical. What's biblical is that God is sovereign over the real choices that we make. And here's, this isn't just important theologically, it's important practically. Because sometimes when, when bad things happen, we say, well, how could, how could a good God let, let bad things happen? Sometimes the answer people give, and I know it's well-meaning, but it's not actually helpful. Sometimes the answer people give is, well, people just have free will. And God didn't really want it to happen, but people have free will, and so that's how it works. Man, that's a bad answer. Some of you go, well, I've said that before. <laughs> yeah, and here's why you should stop saying that. Because here's the thing. Something bad has happened to me, and the answer is, well, people have free will, and God couldn't really stop it. Then why would I turn to God now for help? If God wanted to help, but poor God, his hands were tied, he couldn't do anything because these people down there, they're so big and powerful with their big free will. Right? That's not actually helpful. If you say to someone, well, God couldn't really stop it, it's just the free will, but you should trust him, why? Whereas, if, if I believe that God is sovereign, that God reigns and rules over it, I may not understand why he allowed it to happen. I may be really angry that he allowed it to happen, but at least I know that I can turn to him and that he reigns and rules over it and might be able to help in the future. So this is important theologically. It's important practically. It means there is purpose in our pain. It means when we are suffering, that what people mean for evil, God means for good. It means that whatever takes place, God is using it for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. All right? End parentheses. Two events. Jesus' death, Jesus was crucified, and Jesus' resurrection. We talked about this already, the, the whole David thing. David's in the tomb, Jesus isn't, we saw it, Jesus rose. One of the things we're going to see in the book of Acts is that over and over and over, these sermons focus more on the resurrection of Jesus than the, the cross of Jesus. It's like, well, of course he died, but he rose, right? And these two events, the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, are the two events that are, that are what Christianity is about. Christianity is not about a philosophy. It's not about a mindset. It's not about an ideology. It's about history. These things happen. And Peter says, these things happen. Let all, verse 36, let the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Isn't it interesting 
that multiple times he says, you killed him, you crucified him. He's talking to thousands of people, many of whom are from other parts of the Roman Empire who were in town for this festival and maybe weren't even around 50 days ago when all this happened. How can he say, you killed him? I mean, didn't the Roman soldiers kill him? And didn't Pilate, the governor, instruct the Roman soldiers to do it? Isn't it their fault? Or maybe it's the Sanhedrin, that that group of 70 religious leaders who who trumped up all these false charges to bring him to Pilate. Maybe maybe they're responsible. But, But it was also the crowd who was shouting, crucify him. Who killed Jesus? The answer from this is, You did, and you did, and you did, and you did. Humanity killed Jesus. Because it was Jesus coming to rescue all the rebels from all over the world. And that's why Jesus came. And it's our sin that put him on that cross. Which is why, in verse 37, so we pick up there, they're cut to the heart. Verse 37, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Listen, they were cut to the heart because God's spirit was moving, because they, these people had power to hear. They were able to see. They were able to seek things that they weren't able to before. And it cuts them to the heart. And they ask the question, what shall we do? And it's fascinating because back in verse 12, when they saw the coming of the Spirit, they said, what does this mean? And now they ask, what shall we do? That's really the question you should always ask every time you see a work of God, every time you hear a sermon. What does this mean? What shall we do? That's what they ask. Peter said to them, verse 38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness And continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So this whole sermon, this whole message of Christianity, started with two witnesses. It came from the prophets who predicted it and the apostles who saw it. It's about two events, the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. But the message of Christianity also offers two promises. Two promises. You see these in verse 38. Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. These are the two promises. If you trust in Christ, you will have your sins forgiven, and you will have the gift of the Holy Spirit. First, you'll have your sins forgiven. This means... That everything you've ever done or said or thought, all the good things that you know you should have done and you failed to do, all of those things that make you feel guilt, you know you blew it, and you constantly feel like you're falling short. These things make you feel shame. You always just feel dirty and you feel like, I don't, I don't want people to know the real me because if they know the real me, it's not a pretty thing. Or you feel fear. 
because you know that you can never quite get to where you ought to be and the consequences of that just loom over your head. Here's the promise of the gospel. Your guilt and your shame and your fear can be washed away. You can be forgiven. The prophet Isaiah had talked about this centuries before. He said this in Isaiah 1. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. They are, though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Sin has stained us. It has stained our souls. It has stained our relationships. It has stained our conscience. We're stained. We're dirty. We're defiled. And the promise of Isaiah and the promise fulfilled through Jesus is that that can be forgiven. Those stains can be washed away, right? We've all seen the commercials, haven't we? Haven't we? Where there's the white t-shirt and they pour the grape juice all over it and they rub it in, right? And that, that stain is soaked in there, right? And that's the before picture. And then they show you this bright, sparkly, white, clean t-shirt, right? It's amazing. And that's the offer of the gospel. This stain can be removed. You can be white as snow. But listen, some of us hear that and we go, but you don't know what I've done. And not me. I mean, maybe everyone else, but not me. And these things have, have followed me my whole life, and I'm not sure they ever will get better. And I can never be that clean. And you think that. In the same way, when you watch that commercial, you go, there's no way that got that clean. <laughs> and you know what the secret of the commercial is? That the second shirt is not the old shirt cleaned, it's a new shirt. <laughs> that's why it's so white. That's why it's so clean. And that's what happens in the gospel. You don't just get a cleaned shirt you get a new shirt, you get a new life, you get a new hope, you get a new strength, you get a new power, you get a new courage. You get forgiveness of sins. And what seems impossible is possible because he's not just making you a dingier version of the old you. He's making you new. And some of that is illustrated even by the second promise, which is the gift of the Holy Spirit. God is not just giving us forgiveness. I'm going to wipe the slate clean, and hey, good luck with the rest. He goes, no, I'm going to clean you up, and I'm going to empower you to obey me, and to love me, and to serve me, and to bear witness about me. I'm going to give you a new power and a new strength you never had. It's not just forgiveness. It's also the Spirit. And if you're still not sure that God could deliver on a promise like that, Consider for a moment who's speaking. It's Peter. Peter's the one, if you read the Gospels, who has a foot shaped mouth. 
And Peter is constantly putting his foot in his mouth by, by over-promising and under-delivering. Right? E- even at the point when Jesus says, hey, you're all going to fall away, Peter goes, not me, I never will. And Jesus goes, seriously, all of you are going to fall away. And Peter says, if I have to be killed, I'll be killed, but I won't fall away. And Jesus says, Peter, before the alarm clock goes off, you're going to deny me three times. And sure enough, there's big, bold, bad Peter trembling in his boots as he stands around a fire. And a little girl says, hey, don't you know Jesus? He says, I never knew him. And he goes away dejected and ashamed and afraid and guilty because he denied Jesus three times. And if you read at the end of John, Jesus goes out and he meets Peter where he's at in the midst of his failure and they have breakfast on the beach and three times Jesus says, do you love me? Because he wants to give Peter the chance to three times say, yes, I do. And he restores him and he forgives his sin and he pours out his spirit and the biggest failure now becomes the spokesman. That is an unbelievable promise. Forgiveness of sins, the gift of the Spirit. But it comes with two conditions. So I think we live in a, a culture that to some degree thinks that everyone just gets forgiven. It's kind of salvation by death. If you die, well, everyone gets forgiven, you go to heaven. And the scriptures declare over and over, and especially in this passage, that no, that's not true. These promises, these offers of the Holy Spirit and of forgiveness of sins, these are not for everyone. Now, they're available to everyone. Anyone who is humble enough to receive them may have them, right? They're for young and old and men and women and servants and rich. They're for everybody. We already saw that. But they're only for those who are willing to humble themselves and do the things that Peter talks about in verse 38. Peter said to them, repent. The first condition of receiving this promise is repentance. Repentance is a change of mind. It's a, it's a, it's a turning around. It's a seeing things differently. Right? The image is we're walking away from God and we repent, we turn, and we walk toward him. We walk toward the cross. Our minds change. Our values change. Right? And this repentance is a gift that God gives. It's why all of a sudden you go, I see things in a new way. I love things in a new way. And it's a, it's a sense of, I don't want my old life. I don't want that stained t-shirt. I want to live in the new one. We repent. It's not just regret. Get that. It's not just regret. It's not even just saying, yeah, I know, I've kind of blown it. It's saying, I know I've blown it. And I'm turning around. He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, this uh, verse, repent and be baptized, has been confusing to people because almost everywhere else in the Bible, it doesn't say repent and be baptized. It says repent and believe, turn and trust. Right, this is, uh, 
John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever was baptized, eh, that whoever believed in him wouldn't perish but have eternal life. It's, it's even verse 21 of Acts 2. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So everywhere else, it's repent and believe. Turn and trust. But here, it's repent and be baptized. What does that mean? Why? Well, it's because to be baptized is the best illustration possible that you're actually turning, especially in this setting. Because here's the setting. You had all these like very devout Jews. Remember we talked about that? And the, de- the viewpoint of the devout Jews was that only Gentiles were unclean. And so if a, if a non-Jew wanted to embrace Judaism they, as a proselyte, they had to have a ritual cleansing. They had to have a baptism of sorts. And they would be clean and they would be allowed to participate in Judaism. And so what Peter's saying is, no, no, no. You're all unclean. The most devout Jew, the very best person, you're still dirty. You still need to be cleansed. You still need to be dead in Christ and resurrected to a new life. So baptism is the picture in this passage of believing, of trusting, of calling upon the name of the Lord to be saved. So the two conditions in this passage are repent and be baptized, but but I hope you see that, that baptism is a picture, right? These people would go publicly baptized, saying, I'm with Jesus. The guy that everyone is against, I'm with him. That is a statement that they believe. You even see it at the last verse that we read in verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized. If you receive the word of Christ, You follow in baptism because faith is about calling out to the Lord. It's about calling out to Jesus, saying, Jesus, I can't save myself. Would you save me? I've been thinking about this lately because uh, our two-year-old, Mary, um, will often call to her mother for help across the house. And and sometimes Molly's nursing our baby or something, and she's not available. And I'll hear hear Mary maybe on her potty or something, Mom! Mom! She's calling on the name of her mom. Mom! And I come to the bathroom and I go, Mary, uh, mom, mom's not here right now. How can I help you? What do you need? I say, what do you need? And she goes, I need mom. I need mom. I'm not sure you can deliver what I need. I need mom. And that's faith. Faith says, Jesus! Jesus, I need you, Jesus. And the world comes in and says, oh, I can give you what you need. Well, a little happiness, maybe you just need more money. Maybe you need a better relationship. Maybe if your marriage was just a little bit, ooh, yeah, I, I can provide this. And faith says, I need Jesus. You can't help me here. I need Jesus. Because everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is Christianity. Jesus died and rose again. The prophets predicted it. The apostles saw it. It offers forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit to anyone who will repent and believe in Jesus. Have you repented and believed? Have you trusted him? If you haven't, your sins are still on you. You're still stained. And the guilt and the shame and the fear that you right now know you can't shake, you won't be able to shake it any other way. 
the power to change, the power to live a different life. You'll never have it. And it's offered to you in Jesus. So save yourself from this crooked generation. Save yourself from a way of the world that is headed toward destruction and turn in repentance and faith to Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, I thank you for the good news of the gospel. God, thank you for the new life that we have in Christ. Thank you how it's pictured in baptism as we go down into the water like Jesus went down into the grave, as we come out of the water uh, like Jesus rose from the grave remembering that we have a new resurrected life, a new power, a new hope. God, thank you for that. And God, I pray for those right now who are cut to the heart. And God, I pray that they would receive the gift of faith. God, I pray that they would mark on the back of their card that they want to be baptized, that they want to respond in obedient trust to Jesus. God, I pray that you would allow us to always be continually thrilled by this message. Pray in Christ's name. Amen.